You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1949 film, The Third Man. So this movie, it takes place in post-World War II Vienna. We follow a man named Holly Martins. He is a American who publishes a lot of pulp westerns. He's struggling for money. He gets a telegram from a friend of his named Harry Lime, who's been staying in Vienna, offering him a job there. So he he's, gets on a train. It meets him at the address, but one of the tenants in the same place tells him that there was a funeral for Harry Lime, that Harry Lime is dead. He goes to the funeral, they're um, burying him, and he sees a mysterious woman and all these friends of Harry Limes and also a British um, military man named Calloway. Calloway takes him out for a drink, and he sort of hints that Harry Lime was a big figure in the black market and did some bad stuff. Um, Martins refuses to believe this because they've been friends since childhood, and he starts to think that something mysterious is going on with Holly, Lime, I mean Harry Lime's death, mm-hmm. and he starts investigating, interviewing um, many of his friends who were at the funeral, and they all have sort of different variations of the death. Some say he died instantly. Some say it took him a while to die. And in his last words, he told people to specifically take care of Holly Martins. Yeah. He also meets Anna Schmidt, who was. Um, the, a lover of Harry Lime, and she gives him information, and he starts to formulate that somebody bumped him off, and there was there, there's a third man at the at at the scene of the accident. Apparently, he was hit by a car. Yeah, and he starts to realize that somebody killed him, and eventually he snoops around that one of the tenants tells him that there was also something strange about his death. But right before he's about to give him more information, he winds up dead. Yeah, this guy's the porter. Porter. The yeah. porter who's kind of like uh, the equivalent of a, a building superintendent. Uh, so he saw, yeah, he saw the uh, the accident. And he and his wife know what really happened. And he's very nervous about it and realizing that he's taking a significant risk in informing uh, Holly of what he saw because he's also aware that Harry Lyme, as you've mentioned, is heavily involved in the underworld. So he's, he thinks he's, uh, Martins thinks he's close to breaking it, finding out why, who murdered him. But just as that's about to happen, um, Calloway takes him and shows him what it tells him the truth about the extent of his black market activities. Yep. And Lyme finds, we find out that he was selling penicillin to civilians in Vienna, which yeah. is illegal. 
But the thing was, it wasn't even the right kind of penicillin. It was strongly diluted, and the people who were taking that were not only not getting well, but it would also uh, make them worse, specifically yes. children. Yes. And he showed them pictures of the victims of this, and now Martins feels, at the point, doesn't really care anymore about the murder. He feels like, in a way, Lime had it coming. He talks to Anna Schmidt again. And just as he's leaving the apartment, he sees somebody following him. He thinks it's one of Lime's friends that he's been interviewing. He yells at them. Right as that happens, an angry woman opens the door, turns on the light, and its light shines down the bottom and realizes that the person is Harry Lime. Yeah. That Lime faked his own death. He was the third man, and that they used the body of one of his partners to fa- yeah. fake his death. Yes. The, the the person that they use is actually this man named Harbin. Harbin, yes. Who was his, not just his partner, but his source for the penicillin. He was stealing it from a hospital he worked at. He was a medical orderly there, stealing it there. So it's pretty clear that Harry had him killed and and placed in the coffin to fake his own death. He chases him, but he doesn't figure out how he was able to escape then they realize it was the sewers then they realize this is vienna it's divided into four sections a american side a british side a french side and a russian side this is post-world war ii this is the beginning of the cold war so the russians don't really want to work with anybody else so he they protect harry lime on the russian side and lime gives them information on anna that she's a uh, member of Czechoslovakia, and they're trying to get her so she can get deported back to Russia. Yeah. Eventually, he tr- um, they have a meeting on, on the famous Vienna Ferris wheel. and Which is still there. It's still there. Yeah. Um, there was a movie called uh, Before Sunset from the 90s, and there, it's a romance film, but they go on that Ferris wheel. Yeah. So it's still in movie history. Yeah. But um, they, he has a, he tells them that he's a, po- Martins tells Lime how appalled he is at his actions, but, you know, the famous cuckoo clock speech is yeah. Lime justifying his actions, like, well, great things will come out of the strife and turmoil. If it was this was just a peace and brotherly love, you wouldn't get anything out of it. Yeah. That's sort of his justification for his actions. Eventually, Martins tries to talk to Callaway. They arrange a setup, so he decides to help to get um, Lime. Yep. So they can take him down, but also make sure that Anna is able to escape. Anna's on the train, but she sees Martins, and so she decides to stay. Then later on, he tries to set up a meeting with Lime at a cafe. Anna comes in, berates him, and that's when Lime figures out, and he escapes. And there's the famous chase through the sewers. Yeah. And Lime kills a Sergeant Payne, who was close friends with Calloway. Mm-hmm. And, but then eventually they... Um, Martins corners him and Lime's already been wounded and the police are about to close down on him and Lime gives a look to uh, Martins and Martins shoots him again, kills him. Yeah. And now Lime is dead. The final scene is now he's getting his official funeral and there's always this thing of Callaway is keep trying to get Martins to leave on a plane. Yeah. He's finally getting him but he decides to stay one last time to try to reconnect with Anna. He waits up for her. She's walking. 
and then she passes by with not even giving him a glance. Yep. And that's how the movie ends. Yeah. And this is one of those classics. I wanted to do a good old-fashioned film noir, yeah. and I figured this was the juiciest one we could do. Yeah, it's, just, it's a great film in so many ways. Uh, cinematography is breathtaking in this thing. And there's, I know... Uh, kind of an interesting uh, uh, conversation going on in in the film ball, film bluff. Uh, excuse me. There's an interesting conversation going on in in you know the uh, film circles of just how much of an influence um, Wells had on this film, uh, as opposed to the director uh, Carol Reed. And uh, you certainly can see at least an influence in the angles he uses. Uh, a, a lot of uh, typical Wellsian angles looking up uh, at characters and uh, great, great use of light and shadow to really uh, uh, convey the atmosphere of post-war uh, Vienna. And uh, to sound cliche, but accurate, the the dark world <laughs> of of the underworld does a great job with it. This is one of my, visually speaking, just one of my favorite films. This thing is fantastic. It is funny because this film is known for those Dutch angles and strange camera uh, yeah. setups. And I believe uh, William Wyler, who we talked about earlier with the best years of our lives, he was friends with the director, Carol Reed. And he, uh, and he gave him that as a gift. He's like, make sure you you set the camera right then your next movie. <laughs> but the, but it's, cl- it's, it's, great that he does that because it it adds to your uh, unease and disorientation as uh seeing th- seeing events through the, the eyes of holly martins who's basically a very naive american although that's a little you you kind of wonder uh, you kind of question the level of his naivete because um they have a conversation he and anna have a conversation uh fairly fairly late in the film where they're both talking about their experiences with Harry. And this isn't the first time for Holly Martins that uh, Harry has kind of uh, used him as a fall guy, right? So you you would think he, he would not be quite so um, naive about Harry's uh, uh, motives and his, his moral status as he is. Because, you know, he, he admits, you know, there's been a couple of times where Harry's kind of left me in the lurch to, for purposes of his own self-protection. And Anna knows this. What's very interesting, I guess it's kind of a question that hangs over this film, is uh, exactly uh, the question of exactly why these two characters who are fairly familiar with him and his... Uh, 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 selfishness uh why they're still loyal to him and uh um feel an obligation toward him in some way to uh either help protect him or uh in in anna's case she's fallen in love with him and we see uh we don't see she doesn't see it but holly sees it um uh uh, Harry's the ease with which Harry can throw people over, you know that 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 um, that discussion on the Ferris wheel and uh, 
Holly says, you know, don't you care about Anna? And he, he clearly doesn't. He says he doesn't. Oh, it's a pity, old man, you know. But he really doesn't care uh, if he does throw her under the bus. He doesn't care if she is going to be taken by the Russians. Um, doesn't it's, it's not of concern to him. And it, 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 the fact that he uh, was so ready to kill Harvin and have him be quite literally a body double for him at a uh, funeral for him and his near willingness he doesn't quite decide to do it but it's a nice little bit of tension there on that ferris wheel uh, in the ferris wheel scene his near he, he, he approaches uh, and they talk about it uh, throwing holly off the ferris wheel and claiming it's an accident right but he decides for whatever reason, not to do it. Does he have a, a modicum of feeling for uh, Holly? We don't know. Um, but it just all raises, you know, it just raises that question, that kind of attention in this film. Uh, is it familiarity uh, and just having lived with the guy and, and undergone kind of adventures with him at some sort that uh, make these two people who are probably most familiar with him, blind to him. Um, whereas you see Calloway just is uh, a little bit, I won't say flabbergasted, but uh, uh, perhaps a, a bit bemused that they don't see it, right? And he has to go to great lengths in the case of Holly Martins to convince him and but notice the convincing is always kind of it's 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 temporary at least once he changes his mind again uh but he eventually does help them uh pursue him and then he has to make that choice at the end there whether he's going to kill him or not and i found that scene intentionally ambiguous as to why holly shoots him there in the sewer you, before that before that particular scene you see uh uh harry climb up he's been shot once by uh calloway after he had shot Payne, right so he climbs up that ladder to the to manhole cover and he's he doesn't have the strength to open it anymore he tries he fails then he goes back down the ladder a bit then you see him hanging on to that ladder and you can kind of see he's starting to fade a little probably from blood loss but he's got his gun in his hand and then you have a couple of intercut scenes of him looking at uh holly holly looking at him then they go to callaway you hear the gunshot right mm -hmm. interesting question revolving around that scene did um Harry moved to shoot Holly or not. There. I th I, they give each other a look. Yeah. And I think it wasn't that he was going to try to shoot him. It was his, I'd rather have you kill me than have me go to prison or stand trial. Like, do, do this favor for me for our old time's sake, something like it that. It could be, but you have to remember a little while earlier, just before the pursuit starts, when Harry shows up at that... Uh, cafe um anna's also there harry's about to shoot holly he pulls his gun he's pointing it toward holly 
Uh, but then Anna shows up, and he decides not to. And then he runs away, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. Would Would Holly have been willing to, as it were, not forgive it, but overlook that? And you have the evidence there that he would have shot him, or, or Harry would have shot Holly, right? So I that, that scene's always, I've always had that question I always there. thought he was yeah. too weak to even lift the gun. He could barely even lift it. So I saw it more as an act of mercy for whatever friendship they used to have. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But because I, I think the, the, uh, the in line with that, that question that arises with, uh, in the case of Anna and, and Holly, uh, of whether or not they ever truly see the extent of the sociopathic nature of Harry, um, that in, in association with that question, I sometimes read that last scene as purposefully ambiguous because the other interpretation is that Harry uh, does move to shoot him. He's got the strength to hold on to the, the ladder after all. If you've got the strength to do that, you've got the strength to, to move your hand, pull a trigger on a gun. And we're not shown whether it happens mm-hmm. or not, so we still are stuck with these two interpretations and uh, uh, the the question of what what Holly's final opinion of Harry is. It's a gr- it's a great film for this reason, I think. And it, it reflects on what Europe, or even just particularly most of the world, was like after the war. I mean, a long time ago when we talked about um, uh, Dieter Dengler, the yeah. German American uh, German immigrant who became a Vietnam War pilot, he grew up during this time period after World War II, and also the director of that movie, Werner Herzog, and they shared their experiences where they talked about how their mom would get uh, posters off of walls and cook the paste off of it, and they yep. would eat that because they were so desperate for food. Yeah. But even in uh, Japan, we were an occupying force for up until 1950, I believe, yeah. doing the same thing over there. So it highlights how... When you have a situation like this, there always will be people like a hairy line because there will be a black market. People are going to be desperate for supplies. Yes. And then people like this are going to exploit that. Yep. And uh, I think one of the interesting uh, pieces of dialogue in the film occurs early on when Calloway and uh, Holly are talking about Harry and the black market. And you notice Holly says, well, you know, why are you pursuing him? It's, it's no big deal. He's selling tires. He's selling... Things of a relatively innocuous nature that uh, may even be necessities, right? Um, but um, uh, and he's, he's questioning whether whether since the black market is so widespread and common in those kinds of situations, whether it is worth your while to uh, pursue these people and uh, uh, kind of throw the book at them legally. Should you ju- shouldn't you just let the black market continue because it is, after all, giving people things they need. Um, now, that seems to be the thought process Holly is having and why he's a little bit disgusted with the fact that Calloway is pursuing his friend. Um, but Calloway makes the very, uh, he, he, he foreshadows the very important distinction by saying it's not tires, right? Um, that He's what, not listening to him because he thinks, yeah. oh, well, it's something else. He's not getting the hints that, no, yeah, he was doing something really despicable. Something really despicable. Um, 
um, they, and, and that really uh, uh, makes the later scene all the more powerful or two scenes that are all the more powerful, that montage where he's given all of the evidence, um, uh, including uh, uh, again, another piece of foreshadowing, Harbin's signature and fingerprints on things, Harry's signature and fingerprints on things. But then the later scene where, uh, toward the end of the film, where he says, uh, you know, before I take you to the station so you can leave, after he had changed his mind about helping, yeah. um, I, I just need to make a quick stop. Hey, you can go in too. You know, it's a it's something a writer might be, might be interested in, and that's the scene where they go into the children's ward of kids, most of whom have had meningitis and had unknowingly been given uh, uh, inadequate doses that cut uh, penicillin that Harry had been selling, stealing from hospitals, and then selling back to hospitals. Um, and you never see the kids, but you don't need to. The series of shots there is really uh, very uh, striking. You see the last one being a teddy bear of a recently deceased child. And we hear earlier in the film that these kids that did have meningitis either died or were mentally and uh, uh, psychologically brain damaged to such an extent that they, they would live the rest of their lives in misery. Right, and that really drives home uh, the seamier side, the deeply immoral side of the black market. Um, it's 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 quite it's quite quite different that kind of uh, activity that Harry was doing, contrasted with more benign forms of black market, like tires or cigarettes. Yes, yeah. you know, and, and you even had that going on over here when. Uh, uh, during the height of the war, you had uh, uh, different levels of black market going on. Uh, some people were just selling butter under the table, right? And other people were selling more vital uh, goods under the table. And that's the uh, point that Callaway is trying to make to uh, Holly. And uh, it sinks in, but then uh, he changes his mind. And he changes his mind, I think, primarily because Anna is uh, disgusted with him with, uh, for turning on, on on his friend, her lover. And she seems to be simply unable to see that Harry considers her to be just another uh, tool that can become an impediment. And... He can't, she can't see that he'll get rid of her if he needs to, right? He will turn her over to the Russians if he needs to. He'll even kill her if he needs to. After all, he's done that with uh, Harbin. Uh, we see he almost does that with Holly. So why would he be any different with her? But she can't see this. She literally cannot see this. And then you have that very interesting contrast between that last scene's fantastic, the two characters. By that time, Holly's kind of seen the light. She hasn't. She walks by him, totally ignoring him, as if she's totally ignoring the knowledge he has of what Harry is really like. And then the film ends. Which is, because um, this was based on a novel by Graham Greene, which during production was similar to what we saw with um, 
Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick on 2001. It was made around the same time. And yeah. if you read the novel, yeah. the ending is much more happier. They're yeah. walking arm in arm together, and it's their wind. he gets the girl at the end. Yeah. But I, in, Graham Greene says that, you know what? This movie probably did it better. Kind of a happy David O. Selznick ending. In, in the, it's interesting because I, I read that, too. He, he wrote it in the process of writing the screenplay to aid him in uh, creating the screenplay. And I, I do I do agree with it. I think that the ending of the film is uh, much more disquieting and therefore makes the film much more memorable, I think, than it would have been if perhaps she walked up and uh, Holly is there, they join each other, and then continue to walk off the out of the frame. Uh, definitely, yeah. And, and it's an interesting, it's just because it's an interesting meditation on loyalty and perceptions and how uh, close friendships can uh, and loyalty can often blind people um, to the shortcomings and faults in the case of Harry is terrible faults uh, of people that they're close to yeah, and we talk about this movie the most famous scene is that cuckoo clock speech where Lime is justifying this but as horrible as it, that's no justification at all, but does great eras of war or bloodshed or terror bring about great, you know, artistic? Because he says, you know, the Borgias era in Italy was horrible, but we saw Da Vinci, we saw Michelangelo, we saw the, all the great Renaissance painters. In this time, I, you, you think Germany, like post-World War I, you had the Expressionists, the German Expressionists, not only in movies, but also in paintings. Yeah. What, you know, you saw post-World War II Japan, you saw a rebirth of their cinema with people like Ozu and Kurosawa. Is he somewhat right in that horrible times in history bring about great artistic achievements? Yeah, um, I, th- I think that's true, and I would add to that... Uh uh, probably the most striking uh, historical example of a fairly warlike culture uh, where uh, uh, um, um, elements of it were more or less in constant struggle with each other that nevertheless brought, brought about significant cultural achievement, uh, in fact, cultural achievement that uh, has had a tremendous impact on subsequent history, at least in the Western world, is ancient Greece. Um, the, the city-states there were constantly fighting each other internally, uh, let alone the external enemies of the, uh, for instance, the Persian Empire. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's certainly, uh, uh, and uh, for some reason, strife and conflict uh, uh, bring forth uh, creative elements. I, I think so. Um, it's kind of funny, though, that. Um, his choice of contrast is uh, uh, the Swiss, and he says that all they did invent was invent the cuckoo clock. Um, well, first of all, I think the cuckoo clock was actually a German invention, but um, and maybe I'm wrong about that. But uh, that conveniently forgets that actually the the Swiss for a time were considered to be a very potent military force. That's the reason you still have Swiss Guard at the Vatican. Because uh, earlier in history, when the Vatican certainly was much more of a political player, they had an interest in having uh, competent military uh, uh, units and protection for uh, the Vatican and 
who did they hire? They hired the Swiss. Um, but yeah, um, I, I would I would say uh, uh, times of turmoil uh, do often give rise to significant artistic and cultural achievement. Um, but then again, um, I don't want to overplay it because you've had also significant periods in history where things have been more or less peaceful, and they too have given rise to significant cultural achievement. Um, and at least the United States is a good case of uh, that kind of an example, at least in terms of inter- the level of internal conflict. Um, uh, in, on broadly historical terms, we haven't had n- nearly as much of uh, that kind of uh, intrastate conflict as uh, often happens uh, or happened in Europe for extended periods of time. Yet, you know, there are a lot of cultural uh, achievement, scientific achievement, literary achievement, artistic achievement, and so forth um, has come from the United States. Uh, so, now, now, having said that, uh, I think human beings tend to be fairly bellicose anyway. So the, the bellicosity is a more or less uh, constant feature of history. There's always some level of it. It's probably never going to go away. And uh, uh, somebody might uh, say on that basis, well, then, see, then it's very hard to argue whether there's a causation or correlation here between uh, that bellicosity and cultural achievement. Don't know what the answer to that one. That's what that's one for historians to try and figure out. But um, great speech. Um, I think the other aspect of that speech, though, that's uh, kind of troubling, uh, is uh, from a moral standpoint, troubling is is the illustration it gives of Harry's capacity to distance himself from other human beings for the purposes of self-protection. That, 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 they're, at the, they're in the Ferris wheel and they're as, as high up as they can go and he opens that door and he says, look down there. Would it bother you, Holly, all that much if one of those Dots, and he's referring to the human beings walking down uh, on the uh, below the Ferris wheel and in the fairground. Would it bother you all that much if one of those stopped moving? Would you turn down twenty thousand dollars for each dot that stops moving? Right. So you see there the the coldness in um, Harry's character. He has managed to distance himself from the impact of his actions. And it's easy for him to do that. Uh, and that's very symbolic, that scene. It's very easy for him to do that as a black marketeer because the only, uh, as it were, interactions with, and that's not even the accurate term, but the only interactions he's going to have with the victims of his black marketeering are very indirect they are literally only through the people that he is doing business with. And, of course, they're not going to have uh, any kind of um, uh, reason to uh, inform him of what's going on with the kids in the hospitals, right? Because they, too, are in it for the money. So they, too, have distanced themselves from the impact of their actions. And that's, a, I think, an interesting cautionary tale. Because uh, any time you live in a society... Uh, uh, 
there are going to be um, large uh, areas of the society that you are distanced from and your actions, uh, you will not be able to see the impact of your actions on those distant people. So it becomes very easy for him to uh, uh, undertake uh, the black marketeering. And it can be very easy for anybody that has that kind of distance, physical or emotional distance, psychological distance from others to not even consider the impact that their actions may have on those others. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a, a dilemma of modern society because we've huge populations, this is bound to happen. Uh, so there's a cautionary tale there, I think, um, for all of us in this story. And you, we talked about how he distances himself from that, but that very, one of the very end scenes as he's being chased to the sewers, there's one area where he is where he's trying to find a way out, and there's all these different dark areas, doorways. Yeah. And he hears all these voices coming from them. Yes. And it's the voices of the authorities hunting him down. Yes. But you wonder if that also represents the voices of his victims. Like it's a way of him being, they're finally coming back. To, if he's seeing the victims, and now at the very end, he realizes what he's, what the damage he's done, and what he's going to have to face when he gets killed. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've never even considered that interpretation of that last scene. Um, the re- I guess I'm reading it as uh, I, I read it as uh, reflective of uh, Harry's um, callousness in this way. I think he figures at every turn in his life, and we like like I've said, we have some intimations of his earlier life being somewhat similar, at least when uh, um, Holly was involved. At every turn, he is able to find some way to wheedle himself out of danger by, again, distancing himself from other people and using them in some way to protect himself from having to suffer the consequences of his actions. Right? It's always Harry thinking about Harry. And he prides himself on being able to always find a way out. Right? And he, in that scene, this is how I'm reading it, uh, he's down in the sewer. The sewer is representative of the moral status of his life. He is a criminal of the worst possible sort. He has complete disregard for other people. So he is a piece of human sewage, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Mm-hmm. Um, now, where before he has always been able to find some passageway out of that sewer and escape the consequences of his actions... In that scene, every single opening, and they he goes to Carol Green goes to great pains to show you this. Every single opening, tunnel, as it were, that will allow him to escape is covered by uh, some unit of the Allied police forces that are uh, uh, doing as best they can with law enforcement in Vienna, right? So there is literally no way out. He is a trapped, and they show this too, sewer rat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, 
I don't think he's had any kind of conversion at all. I wouldn't I say think, conversion, but it is representing the vic- the voices of the victims, and now his time, he's realizing his time has come. Yes, and I, I agree his with that. His time of judgment is coming. Yeah, he, there is no escape. Yes. There is no escape, yeah. All right, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. There you can listen to their other podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and the Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, rich episode of Decade to Classic Movie Soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying, in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Cuckoo clock.